We read scripture this evening from Matthew 26. Matthew 25. Sorry, Matthew 25. These chapters have to do with Jesus' instruction regarding the end of times. We're going to begin reading in the middle of the chapter at verse 31. And our text comprises verses 31 through the end of the chapter, verse 46. Commonly known as the parable of the sheep and goats, even though it technically is not a parable. We hear the inspired word of God. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory. And before Him shall be gathered all nations, and He shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And He shall set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the King say unto them on His right hand, Come, Ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me. Ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was in hunger, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in. Naked, and ye clothed me not. Sick, and in prison, and ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee in hunger or a thirst? or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. May God bless the reading of his word. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, this is not simply the last section of Jesus' discourse on the end times. This is the third day of Jesus' final week on earth. He taught parables pertaining to his coming, each having a different emphasis. And now he teaches this section as the final answers to the questions of the disciples. The light of prophecy here shines more fully. Jesus had touched on the final judgment a few times in chapter 24 in verses 40 verse 42 and then also here in verse 30 he had touched on it. But now Jesus clearly establishes the end of the world and the judgment 
that's going to take place after that end. Now this passage presents an amazing scene. No man is excluded from the final judgment. Every person that's ever lived is present there. Now some have been burned, their ashes strewn in the sea. They will be present to be judged. Some have been eaten up by wild animals. They're going to be there in order to be judged. Regardless of how anyone has died, whether they were burned with fire, they will be raised at the end and will be judged. And we have many passages that emphasize this. Just to list a few. John 5, verse 29. And shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Romans 14, verses 10 to 12. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set at naught thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 13. Every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because he it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Again, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Everyone present there, elect and reprobate, everyone who's ever lived, and they're judged according to their works. Now we're thankful, children of God. We go away from the sacrament with grateful praise and adoration to our God. Knowing our union with Christ, we go away from the sacrament confident and assured that nothing can separate us from Jesus Christ. And knowing that union with Christ, we need not be concerned about Judgment Day. God's children will all stand there before judgment. But we will not be alone. We stand there found in Jesus Christ. Now Jesus makes the matter plain here. The focus will be on the obedience and the righteousness of the believers and upon the sins and unbelief of the wicked. The standard according to which all will be judged will be their works. Now this creates all kinds of questions for us, does it not? Why do God's people have to be judged if we're already righteous in Christ? If Christ already died for us, He already laid down His life for us, why is it necessary for us to have to appear in a public judgment? We go away from the table convicted of the fact of Christ's sacrifice as a perfect sacrifice in our place and the fact that we are righteous in Him. But secondly, we ask this, do our works really matter that much? And this text says, yes, your works matter so much that they will be the standard according to which you and I will be judged. And so, beloved, we take a look at this solemn teaching under the theme, the judgment of the king. Noting, first of all, the judge, as well as those who are being judged, 
Secondly, the righteous judgment that's executed. And finally, the blessed reward. We read, the Son of Man shall come in His glory. Now, when the Son of Man shall come in His glory with all the holy angels with Him, that depicts the end of the world. The timing of this event is the glorious day when Jesus returns at the end of all ages. The Lord Jesus Christ is described here as the Son of Man. And we know why. He came in human flesh. The Son of God, as the second person of the Trinity, became Emmanuel, God with us. That He might suffer and die for our sins and then be raised again on the third day and ascend into heaven as the head of His people. The one who comes back is that one who lived among us, who died, was raised again, and ascended into heaven. The Son of Man comes with the holy angels with Him. Now as the Son of Man, the way of glory for Him was a way of deep suffering, inexpressible anguish. It was the way of hell itself. His glory is dominion that's given to Him. And the glory of the Son of Man was that He had all authority in heaven and on earth given to Him by the Father. Now we understand that glory was not the original glory that He had as God. He had that glory as God, but now ascribed to Him is a glory by virtue of His being now the Son of God. The one who came into human flesh is exalted at God's right hand and is crowned now with glory and with honor. According to Hebrews 2 verse 9. Now Jesus Christ was aware of that glory through all of His sufferings. He was aware that His suffering was necessary for Him to receive that glory. That was His goal. That was His desire. And as we read from John 17 this morning, while the Elements were being distributed. That was not only Jesus' goal for himself, it was his goal also for his people. That not only he would attain to that glory, but that he would take all of his people to be with him in the enjoyment of that wondrous glory. Now the devil was constantly trying to take Jesus away from that focus. And the desire of the devil was to get Jesus to focus on the earthly instead. Not that way of glory that God had ordained. And so the devil was constantly trying to tempt Jesus into the way of sin. Tempting him to forsake God and to forsake that glory. But Jesus knew the way to glory was the way through the cross. It was a way of suffering. And the way to glory was the way by which he would make payment for the sins of his people through his suffering on Calvary. Now, Jesus received this glory as soon as he ascended into heaven. And that's the marvelous wonder of his ascension and his being seated at God's right hand. Revelation 5 verse 12 expresses the joy of heaven at this occasion. Worthy is the Lamb that has been slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. All of that is his now as the exalted Lord ruling all things on God's behalf. His glory is unique. He stands exalted above all creatures, above the whole of the creation. 
And he shines forth as the one who is judge, who is ruler of all. Exposing the hearts of men and laying them bare. His glory is shown especially through his power. The power by which he could pay that price of the sins of his people. The power by which he could exercise dominion over all the things that the Father had given him. And the power by which he directs everything to the goal that he has ordained. That glory of his heavenly Father. And so now, as the Word and Spirit go forth, this is the work of our exalted Savior. He's seeking the glory of God. He's directing everything that takes place in this world to pursue that glorious end. And now we have an insight on Judgment Day. On Judgment Day, this glory is going to be manifest where He will then execute this glory and power to judge. And again, the purpose is that God's name be vindicated, that God be praised. And so Christ judges from this throne of judgment. He returns not only as the bridegroom who's coming for His bride, but also as the judge now to execute that judgment upon His servants as well as upon the wicked. He comes as the great shepherd who must separate the sheep from the goats. The king welcomes the sheep into his blessed inheritance. That inheritance that he's prepared for them. He then goes on to tell them and give them an occasion for this wonder. He comes with his holy angels, his ministering servants, to bring about this wonder sitting on that throne of glory in which all the nations will know who He is, that He is Lord of all the lords. He's King of all the kings. And as He executes that judgment with glory and with majesty, He does so with His angels as all the nations are gathered before Him. Now as He seats seated there in all of His glory and majesty, we read that He says, Come, ye blessed, of the Father. The sheep are currently mixed in with the goats in the sense that the sheep are God's people, the goats are the wicked. At the end of times, however, there will come final glory and rest and eternal peace. And so the shepherd now comes to bring about that division. In verse 34, Christ is speaking to the sheep on his right hand. And he does so with these comforting words. Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now it's important that we take note of those phrase, that phrase carefully. Note that these words make clear that salvation is not something that we've earned. It's something that is gifted to us. Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit. And inheritance is a free gift. The kingdom that's prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is something that has been prepared by God for His children. Now, beloved, there are times when we struggle in this life. There are times when we might think, life is not worth it. It's not worth it to live. 
Or maybe we start thinking that things have to get better or I have to do more good or how can, I, how can my life really be worth living? How can I really be important in life? Isn't there more that I need to do? More that I need to accomplish? Important it is, beloved, for us to remember the reward is spiritual. The reward is heavenly. Over against those prosperity preachers and teachers who want us to send them their money in order to ensure that our life then will be good and we will be able to have a blessed earthly life. We realize that the emphasis of Jesus here is not on the earthly. It's on a life that comes after this earth is burned. It's a life that's spiritual, a life that's heavenly. And the basis for this royal welcome is not the works of men. Notice the basis is not the works of men. Many take this passage to teach. So long as you're busy in good works, you're doing missions, you're helping out people, you're being involved generously in giving for causes, then you don't have to worry. You can expect a good reward. We cannot cry out on the basis of this passage, Jesus, Jesus, look at everything I've done. Look at all what I've accomplished. That's what the goats try to do. And notice their end, everlasting destruction. The blessed words that we read here, come ye blessed of my Father, are the encouragement of the saints. Salvation is all of grace. And the encouragement of the saints is that my value and my worth is in Christ. And what Christ has done for me. And on the basis of that wondrous work of Christ, I will hear, blessed of my Father, come into the joy that awaits. Now this judgment affects all men. All nations are brought before the judgment seat. Before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as the shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. Verse 32. Again, in the world, the sheep and goats are together. They're rather intertwined. They share the same earthly needs. They share the same earthly life. They work sometimes side by side. Sometimes they're members of the same family. The good gifts of God fall upon the good as well as the wicked. The righteous and wicked alike receive these good gifts from God. They even share life at times within the church. A life under the preaching of the word of God. But the day comes when their separation needs to be made complete. And that's what our text here is speaking of. The analogy here is of a shepherd with his flocks. During the day, the shepherds would allow their flocks of sheep and goats to run together. The goats running with the sheep. Feeding together, getting watered together. They'd be together all day. And then at night... It was important that they be separated. And so the flocks then would be separated in the evening. The shepherd would call his sheep out of the mixed group so that the sheep now would be separate from the goats. And the sheep would hear the voice of their shepherd and they would follow their shepherd. There's a sense in which this separation, we realize, has already taken place to a certain degree. Already now, the righteous and the wicked are separated. The life of the wicked is cursed, whereas the life of the righteous is blessed. And so there's a separation spiritually already that's taking place in the midst of this world. 
The righteous and the wicked have a lot in common, but they don't share God's grace. God's grace is particular. It's only to those who are His elect. And then at the moment of death, at the moment of death, the wicked in their souls go to everlasting torment, whereas the righteous in their souls go to heaven. So that there already is a separation that takes place upon death. But now the passage is talking about the final separation. And we know this world exists for the sake of God's elect, sheep. All of history revolves around the gathering of God's church, their salvation, and their preservation. The flock, therefore, of the good shepherd is not a flock of sheep and goats. It's a flock of sheep in which there are found also goats. And the goal of the shepherd, then, is not to find out which one is the sheep and which one is the goat. Rather, the goal of the shepherd is to put the goats out from among the sheep. All men then who ever lived are before Christ on this day. Young and old, infants and elderly saints, men, women, angels, devils, babies that didn't even live to see the light of day. All nations, all tribes. And before that judgment seat of Christ, they must appear to hear the righteous judgment. Now, what is that judgment? We read in verse 35, For I was and hungered, and ye gave me meat, and so on. The criteria that Jesus makes clear here is that every man, every woman, every child is judged according to the work that they perform. When the final sentence of Christ is pronounced on that great day, there's a display of God's perfect justice. The wicked go to hell. They deserve hell because of their sins. They are and they were wicked. They deserve everlasting destruction. And God accomplishes then His perfect decree of reprobation in the way of their wickedness, their unbelief, and their rebellion. No one can say, I deserve to go to heaven on that judgment day. They can't say, I don't deserve the judgment I'm given. They know. They deserve what they will receive. On the other hand, the righteous at the same time are revealed as God's children through the works that are evident in their lives. They go to heaven. God's love was shown toward them. That love of God was manifest. It bore fruit in their lives. They lived in the midst of this world as those who were God's covenant children. They performed the works that God had before ordained by which They pleased their heavenly Father. And the fruit of their election was evident then in those works. Now the judgment according to which all men are judged is the important question that faces every man, woman, and child. Every angel, every devil that ever lived. What have you done with the Son of God's love? What have you done as one who knows that there is a Christ and the purpose for which He came? Now you say, but Jesus was only on earth for a mere few years. Most of them, most of that time, He wasn't even having an opportunity to meet everybody that was in the world. 
But the question then is, what did men do with the revelation of God? What do people do with regard to the Christ? What do they do with regard to those who are Christians? What do they do to those who are of the body of Christ? What they did to the body, they did to Christ. Christ and his saints are identified here as Christ is the head and his saints are the body. Christ reveals himself in and through his people. And there is that union by which Christ establishes himself as the head of his elect, of his people. What happens to the body affects then the head very directly. Now the sheep reveal that they've shown love, they've shown compassion toward Christ. When Christ was hungry, they fed him. When he was thirsty, they gave him to drink. When he was naked, they clothed him and all of the rest. They did this to Christ when they did it to the least of their brethren, Jesus explains. Now there's a number of striking things here. First of all, the striking thing then is that the primary things that are identified in their lives were not these grand, glorious works that they had performed, that they went on this mission trip, or that they were able to go speak in tongues over here, or that they did this grand event by which they were able to save a whole bunch of souls. There were no earth-shaking events for which they're commended. Notice, they had lived humbly, godly, in the midst of their lives, caring for those who gave evidence that they were God's children. Now that's an important point. We know that we are called as God's children to show good and to do good to all men. But that's not the emphasis here. The emphasis here is that when they did it to the least of my brethren, they did it unto me. The emphasis here is on the ministering to the saints. They loved their husbands. They loved their wives. They cared for the children that God had given. They cared for their parents. They looked out for fellow saints. They were living within the body as those who cared one for another. They brought meals to each other. They offered prayers one for one another. When someone was in jail, they went and visited that one. When someone was in the hospital, they were there for that one. These works flowed out of a heart that loved Christ, a heart that loved God and the Christ whom He had sent. These were, not sac- these were not superficial actions. True love was evident in their heart and in their interactions one with another. The sheep were serving one another in humility. There was a care. There was a looking out for one another. There was a helping and assisting of one another. Now sometimes we might be tempted to say, but hold on. Where is that being shown to me? And we feel as though nobody cares about me. Nobody is showing me love. Nobody is showing me that respect, that love, that care. That's completely beside the point, beloved, here. The point is not on others now, it's on you. What are you doing to be busy in that service? Showing that love toward others and living in that spirit of service. We can't control others, but we must and can control the life that we live flowing out of the wondrous grace of God. 
and shown in the life of these saints was a love for God and for the causes of His kingdom. They were not living for the things of this earth. They were not living selfishly in the pursuit of mammon. They were living for God and for His glory and for His cause. Beloved, is that you? Is that me? Am I living for God? Am I pursuing His kingdom? Am I living out of love for God and showing that love by my care for His sheep whom He places on my pathway? How am I showing that love toward those whom He's surrounded me with? My chief primary calling to love God and to love Jesus Christ by loving the neighbor. And that neighbor is the one whom God puts on my pathway day in and day out. It starts in the home. goes on to the workplace, to school, to the bus. It goes on to all those whom I interact with throughout the course of any given day. These are the ones to whom I am called to love, even as I have been given to know the wonder of the love of God. Now the point of Jesus in emphasizing this, again, is striking in terms of this. Let no one lay a guilt trip on you that you're not doing enough for the cause of Christ when you're seeking to live faithfully with regard to those whom God has put on your pathway. Those who are serving Christ in the home, those who are serving Christ in the workplace, those who are serving Christ in the various circumstances and opportunities they have are busy in this love to which God calls us. Now there are times we have opportunities. We have more time. We can spread ourselves broader. We can go visit people in the nursing homes. We can visit people in the hospitals. We can visit people in the prisons perhaps that we're not directly in connection with. When God gives us opportunity, we ought make use of those opportunities. But here's the life that's described of the sheep. God's children living in the service of Christ in the circumstances in which God has placed them. With their husbands, with their wives, with their family, with their classmates, living in a manner that reflects their willingness to give of themselves for the sake of others. Beloved, this must and will be your and my life as we go away from the table of the Lord. We know the wondrous love of God with which He's loved us. And now our delight and our desire is to live out of that love by loving the neighbor even as we love God. What a love! A love so deep, a love so marvelous that He gave Himself for us. That He put me above all of His comforts. That He subjected Himself to deepest sorrow and grief for me. And be loud out of thankfulness, we abound in His service. Out of thankfulness, we desire to honor and to praise Him. Now it's no wonder that the righteous denied that they had done this. This always amazes me. Verse 37, Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered and fed thee? 
or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? They were not deliberately doing these activities to try to earn something. They weren't doing these things to try to make themselves look good. If that were the case, they would have basked in the favor. They said, yes, Lord, that's me. Have you seen what I did last week? Did you see what I was doing? That's not their response. And that answers the questions that sometimes come up in our minds. Ought I be involved in this? Should I do that? Should I do this? What's my motivation? Why? Am I doing this for myself? Am I doing this because it'll make me look better? Do I want to do this because somehow that's going to gain honor for me? When Barnabas gave his land to the early church, he wasn't thinking about himself. But immediately that became the occasion now for Ananias and Sapphira to think, hey, let's sell our property and let's say that it was all of it so that we can get honor and so that we can get praise. Am I doing it to earn my salvation? Do I think that by my actions I'm securing my salvation in the eyes of God? Beloved, repent. Turn to God alone. You can't accomplish or secure your salvation by anything that you do. Or, beloved, am I busy serving the Lord out of thankfulness, doing so out of love for Him? The questions they ask reveal their absolute astonishment. And this shows how far away they were from thinking that they were doing anything to merit or earn anything. They knew their own sinfulness. They knew that they weren't doing it rightly or perfectly. They trusted in grace for all that they had done. They knew that they stood before the holiness of God. And standing before the holiness of God, their sins were readily exposed. And so immediately their response is, we've not done such things. We deserve no credit. Their humility is immediately evident. We've not done anything that would deserve praise and honor from Almighty God. And we think of the references in the Gospels. We've merely done what was expected of us. And even that we've not done with the perfection that was required. But the Good Shepherd assures them, indeed you've done these things. God has ordained these works which He has performed in and through you for His glory. The grace of election had worked fruit in their lives. And the works that they had done, that in which they were involved in, had been likely done somewhat unconsciously, somewhat selflessly, so that while they were busy doing it, they weren't even necessarily fully aware of that with which they were engaged. Especially the idea that this was a work that would be good, that was pleasing in God's eyes. They weren't seeking fame, they weren't seeking glory, they weren't seeking honor. But now God comes and says that He will reward His works which He has performed through them. What a wonder, beloved. Again, for our minds to understand all of this 
is especially difficult. But what a powerful motivation God lays upon us to be busy in the work, the ordinary work to which God has called us. God is working His grace in and through us as we seek to be faithful witnesses of Him in the midst of this world. The goats, on the other hand, reveal their hatred of Christ. They never took care of Christ. They never cared for His saints. They refused to give any kind of provision for their needs. If they did, they surely didn't have the right motives. They did it selfishly. They did it without pursuing it for God's glory. They loved mammon. They desired the things of this earth. They pursued it in all of its fullness. They weren't interested in giving. They mocked. They killed. They were cruel to those around them. And that reflected their lives. Were their lives reflective of love, of care, of concern? No. They were not interested in such. They were picking on others. They were taking advantage of them. They were doing everything they could to get others to benefit them and to benefit from the weaknesses of others. Blinded by their own unbelief to such an extent that they didn't see Christ in His saints. Their sin here is unbelief and they will perish in that unbelief. But notice how they try to justify themselves. What an absolute opposite here. The righteous say, what? When did we do that? The goats, the wicked, they say, what? When did we have opportunity that we didn't do it? They try to deny, first of all, that they ever had opportunity. And they try to insist that if we would have had the opportunity, for sure we would have done it. In essence, they argue, we were never given a chance. And they try to blame God. They try to blame Christ now for it all. They saw Christ. They saw His children. When the sheep came with the truth, they ridiculed Him. They mocked Him. They despised Him and they killed Him. Now, beloved, what we have to be clear about here is the basis and ground of salvation is always found in God's eternal decree and Christ's work. The basis and ground of the judgment that God executes for His church is always His eternal decree and Christ's perfect sacrifice. And so we ask ourselves, does this text mean to teach then that we're judged on the basis of our works? And the answer is no. Because if that were the case, we would all be doomed. The works that God has been pleased to work in us have still been tainted with sin because of the depravity of our nature. There's only one basis upon which we as God's children are judged. And that's the basis of God's sovereign, eternal decree of election and the perfect work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the text makes that very clear. Note this, first of all. They are called sheep from the very beginning. They are sheep. They are God's elect, chosen from before the foundation of the world. They were not goats and then they became sheep. They didn't become sheep by their own works. They were sheep by the grace of God from the beginning. And the fact that they were sheep is what caused them to live the way that they did. 
The sheep, secondly, are called blessed by the Father. They're those whom the Father had chosen to bless. They're the objects of His blessing. And we think there of Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5. According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. That's the only possibility of blessing, having been chosen by God in Jesus Christ. These sheep of themselves were no better than the goats. But God's good pleasure, His sovereign eternal decree, is the basis and the foundation of their blessedness. They're called righteous because of their union to Jesus Christ. The wicked are judged on the basis of their works, but that doesn't alter the fact that they're judged on the basis of God's sovereign good pleasure in predetermining damnation for them. They're called goats. Never were they sheep. They're the cursed. They're the objects not of God's blessing, but of God's wrath. And they're sent to hell because Jehovah God is sovereign. And His decree is just. He could have allowed and sent everyone to hell after the fall. But He ordained that He would choose to Himself a people, the sheep, unto Himself. The sacrificial love then, that is the real difference here between the sheep and the goats, is evident. But important it is for us to know, that sacrificial love doesn't make me a sheep. Because I'm a sheep, I will live out of that sacrificial love. That sacrificial love is the fruit of that election. There must be and there will be a difference in this world between those who are the righteous and the wicked. And that difference will be that sacrificial love that's evident in God's children. To the righteous... We read, Come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Verse 34. The righteous are blessed with the highest blessing. They're taken to be with the shepherd to all eternity. Beloved, when we stand on judgment day, this will be the sweetest word that we've ever heard. Now again, at the moment of death already, God's children have heard that judgment. But now it's final. We have a place of rest. The battle is over. And God's children are taken now into the fullness of that everlasting rest. The sacrifice that's necessary has been accomplished through Jesus Christ. And God gives them the kingdom. The king declares before the entire universe his union with them. By calling them his brethren. What ye did for the least of these, my brethren, ye did for me. These belong to me. And they're united to the Lord of glory. And they receive then the reward of grace. A reward earned for them by Jesus Christ. There's no merit here. The inheritance has been prepared from all eternity. Sure and certain. So, beloved, the core message here then of this teaching of our Lord is that God's children will love one another 
they will show that love to one another. The followers of Christ will treat others with kindness. They will do so bearing one another's burdens. They will do so living as those who seek to reflect the life of Christ Himself. Now we know we won't do that perfectly. We're going to do it as sinners. We repent. We cry out for mercy as again and again our selfishness and our sinfulness is revealed. But God's children, God's elect, will live out of the wonder of that love with which they've been loved. The wicked, on the other hand, receive their just punishment. They're cast away into everlasting torment. The fire, which was prepared long ago for the devil and for the demons, is now given to them. Now, we don't know much about the nature of hell other than it's described again and again as that which is terrible, that which involves fire, that which has to do with torture, that which is everlasting. Many in our day try to deny the horror and the reality of hell. They try to teach at the moment of death, we just cease to exist. The teaching of hell cannot be separated from the joy of heaven. And this passage doesn't allow us to do so. If we're going to make hell something that's not everlasting, then heaven can't be everlasting. Because the same words are used both here for heaven and hell. Everlasting bliss and everlasting death. To deny hell is really then to deny heaven. As both occur side by side throughout the scriptures. We don't take delight in hell. We acknowledge this is the teaching of God's word. And it's that which God has ordained for his glory. To deny the eternal nature of hell is to deny the eternal nature of heaven. Hell is tragic. It's a place where the unbelief will spend an eternity. They refused God. They turned their back back on His kingdom. They refused to walk in love toward their fellow saints. And now they receive their just reward. A reward determined from all eternity. The opposite of love. They lived selfishly. They lived for themselves. They pursued their own walk. They were not right with God. They did not live out of Christ. They did not repent from their sin. But beloved, the ultimate blessedness of this event is that God's righteousness will be declared before all men. Before the eyes of all the nations and all men, God's righteousness will be evident. That God is right in all of His works. That God's judgment is just. The wicked's works will condemn them. They refuse to live as God commanded them to live in the midst of the world. No one will go to hell saying, I don't deserve to be here. Everyone will know and see, I deserve what I've received. God's righteousness will be seen in the judgment of the righteous. They reveal that the life they lived was not their own. The life that they lived was a life that was given them by God in Jesus Christ. Their sins will be revealed as they never saw them before. Before the light of God's everlasting love. And the purpose of that will be to extol and to magnify the wonder of God's grace. So that all of the elect will go to heaven knowing 
None of us deserve to be here. And yet, the judgment has been spoken. And now we go to the reward of grace that God has given to us. Beloved, our union with Christ is our only comfort. Our union with Christ is our blessed assurance. God will reward the work that He's begun within us, bringing it to its fullness according to His perfect purpose and promise. And the goal of all history then will be realized. God's power and God's glory manifest before all mankind, all men bowing before Jehovah God as God alone. The power of the love of God will be evident as that love was at work in the hearts and lives of His children. That love by which they cared for, they pursued, they assisted, they showed compassion one toward another. We read in Revelations 2 verse 10, Be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee a crown of life. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we stand in awe. We know that we are not deserving. We know that we have failed miserably. We know that our lives are lived in selfishness and the pursuit of lust and pleasure. Lord, forgive us and strengthen us that we might know our sin, that we might repent and turn from it. And that we might know the power and the wonder of that love with which Thou hast loved us. A love so wondrous, so mighty, that it will move Thy children to live unto Thee, now and to all eternity. Amen.